Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 556 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down everything that happened across NXT and AEW this week. Of course, AEW is building toward Revolution Sting's retirement match. That is coming up in just a couple of weeks. NXT on the long road to stand and deliver on WrestleMania 40 weekend, but there's plenty going on in that universe as well. We're going to break all of that down on today's show. The one thing, though, we're not going to touch is what happened in New Japan Pro Wrestling over the weekend. Generally, we try to cover any big New Japan news on the Thursday episode, big news, big matches, whatever the case might be. We try to do it the same week. Unfortunately, it's been a jam-packed week for the Silver King, so we're going to do our best to cover that next week in this exact same spot. Your patience is, of course, appreciated. Despite that, we have an absolutely loaded show for you today here on Getting Over, just like we always do. So allow the Silver King to get right into it with a reminder that this podcast is all about Defy. Be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. It's also where you can DM and tweet us questions and comments for the show again on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, sign up. You'll get bonus audio, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling, instant reaction audio to Raw, NXT, Dynamite, and SmackDown every single week, along with exclusive news posts on Friday. Again, that is buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Briefly, before we get into today's show, a quick scheduling update for you. The very special WWE interview episode involving Seth Rollins, Gunther, Bronson Reed, kind of, you'll understand more soon, Jade Cargill, Chad Gable, and pretty much all of Alpha Academy. That is coming Friday, this week. Special episode for your ear holes. Make sure you do not miss it. Next week, on Tuesday, we will be back with our WWE Elimination Chamber Ultimate Preview. Now, that, of course, is assuming that nothing crazy happens this coming Friday on SmackDown, which will involve The Rock and Roman Reigns. So assuming nothing nutty comes out of that, we don't have to suddenly do an instant reaction audio or something. Our next show after the special interview episode will be that Tuesday WWE episode. And then next Thursday, again, we'll be talking NXT, AEW, and hopefully New Japan Pro Wrestling as well. But this show, as mentioned, just NXT and AEW. We have timestamps in the episode descriptions for both sections of the show if you feel like you need or want to jump around for one reason or the other. But as always, I hope you listen to the entire show. So as usual, let's kick it off with NXT. Dijak was infuriated watching a replay of the Ilya Dragunov match and last week's NXT on a tablet. He recognized Joe Gacy's yellow mask 
as part of the film study in the NXT logo. We mentioned that last week. So Dijak picked up a small duffel bag, opened it, smirked, and then left his, let's call it, layer. Nothing really happened here to analyze in this moment. We had Carmelo Hayes against Joe Gacy. This opened hour two. As Gacy made his entrance, the camera flipped over like 180 degrees, which actually made for a pretty unique and cool look. He was all over Melo early, including a spot where he confused him by briefly hiding under the ring, only to hit a tope seconds later. Gacy went on another run late, hitting a Uranagi and a Mishinoku driver. Hayes came back with a lifted cutter, but Gacy quickly responded, catching him flying with a boss man slam. However, Melo countered the handspring lariat finisher with first 48, and then he added nothing but net for the hard-fought win. Now, this isn't a problem often in WWE these days. You hear me talk about this much more when we do our AEW breakdown, but I'd say this match had no rhyme or reason for happening. Now, commentary eventually told us that the whole locker room wanted to get hands on Mello, but that did not create a specific reason for this particular match. Again, it's very rare that they don't do at least a backstage segment to build a match, but that was not the case here. Gacy was surprisingly game against Mello. He actually caught him on the eye. That showed swelling before the final bell. It was nice to see Gacy look strong against another featured talent, but obviously there was no doubt Mello would get the win in the end, which of course happened. I just didn't think he'd struggle as much as he did though against Gacy, so that was kind of interesting. As Mello celebrated, Dijak attacked Gacy with a nightstick and then pulled a straight jacket out of his duffel bag. He forced it onto Gacy, beat his ass while doing so, finally tying his arms behind his back. Gacy would get like knocked out, then find consciousness and like laugh, all while Dijak was putting the jacket on him. Dijak hit him with a discus boot and then threatened him as fans chanted, free Joe Gacy. I have not seen a straight jacket used in wrestling in a long time, and I haven't seen it used well in an even longer time. So I appreciated the uniqueness here, along with the way they did the beatdown to justify Gacy, like not fighting through the straight jacket as it was being put on him. Eventually, we're going to get to a match. I presume that's going to be part of a stipulation. But really, I kind of just want Gacy to keep losing. Like, it should be a feud that Dijak wins. I would hate it if he got that first win and then Gacy comes back and beats him unless they do a rubber match as long as Dijak comes out on top. At the end of that, that would be okay. Chase U was back in session, moving into their facility again with JC Jane in a seat, getting her props. JC rolled her eyes when Thea Hale got excited for her date with Riley Osborne. Then Adriana Rizzo showed up looking for payment, which was heavy because calendar sales were so good. And JC also put in a word saying, hey, she would love a title match for the guys if D'Angelo family retains the tag team titles. The idea was that she has now become perhaps the most important person in Chase U. Typically fun segment here. Later backstage, Luca Cristofino told Tony D'Angelo he was pressured into the match and no one should treat the family that way. D'Angelo appreciated his candor and shook his hand after their first meeting, at least the first meeting we've seen on screen. The rest of the family also got ready for their matches later in the show. D'Angelo then told Stax they can't stop in the match. They have to just keep pressing because the Wolf Dogs may clown around, but they're serious challengers that need to be overcome. I just loved getting Crucifino with the family as like a crooked Italian lawyer. That would be incredible. Make him the Jimmy McGill, the Saul Goodman of this crew. I just think it would work perfectly. Another solid segment, uh, building storylines and matches simultaneously. The Wolf Dogs also commiserated backstage ahead of their title match. Braun Breaker was calm and collected. His head was a bit in the clouds thinking about his main roster offers he has from SmackDown and Raw. Baron Corbin tried to get him hyped for their match. Braun finally bought him and Baron agreed he would say Wolf Dogs one time if they actually win the titles. That way he could take one of them with him 
to the Chiefs victory parade. So the tag team championship match was the main event, D'Angelo family defending against the Wolf Dogs. Breaker did an awesome move where he picked up stacks like a powerbomb, but actually flipped him into a power slam. D'Angelo then caught Breaker running with a powerbomb and a flying with a spinebuster. Stacks took a deep six, got hip tossed into the challengers outside by D'Angelo. Then he ate two cutters, including the flip over from Breaker. Corbin took D'Angelo out with a deep six and combined with Breaker for an assisted power slam false finish. Everyone suddenly wound up ringside after a bunch of topes. Corbin got dodged into the steel steps. Breaker got double spine busted through the announce table. And this thing exploded when he hit it. Corbin barely broke the fall that followed. He caught Stacks with end of days. D'Angelo knocked Corbin outside and Breaker speared the life out of Stacks for the one, two, three as the Wolf Dogs became the new NXT tag team champions. This was exactly as it should have been. We've talked about this possible result for weeks and it's great to see that NXT followed through with it as we hoped they would. Corbin's first title in six years. Seeing this dude get you deserve a chance while being super over with the crowd, man, you know what? He does deserve it. The guy has been busting his ass in WWE, getting the shit end of creative for years now. And finally, he's in a place where he's not just like loved by the fans, but actually respected for the work that he's doing. Breaker getting strapped up, that's also great. I said it from their first match together. Ever since then, they have been the best tag team on WWE's entire roster. Not necessarily in terms of talent, or cohesiveness, but overall entertainment and excitement. I also love that they've been telling the story of Breaker flirting with the main roster while simultaneously he's winning gold in NXT. This post-NXT title run for Breaker, like over the last year, it's exactly what I hoped we would get when I said a while back that it was way, way, way too early to call him up to the main roster. He's found character, he's improved in the ring, and now he stands as a true all-around talent that is ready for a call-up at any time. Or not, given he's only 26 years old. If they want to wait another six months, they can absolutely do that. Sooner than later, though, it does seem to be necessary at this point. These guys, they've been tremendous as a team. They're the perfect pair to take the titles into Stand and Deliver before probably putting over someone fresh. The match wasn't the smoothest, but the spots and sequences, they were on point. The stuff ringside allowed the two biggest stars to fight from under and garner babyface cheers and victory, even though technically they were heels coming into the match and the crowd went ballistic for them. It's really tough to ask for more from a TV title match. 3.75 stars, B+. So Rizzo fought Jada Parker. Jada did a springing, let's call it ass senton, I guess. <laughs> it was a fun spot. Rizzo sat up defiant of Parker, who dominated her the entire match only to eat a forearm to the chest ahead of the one, two, three. I didn't really see much from Rizzo here. She was clearly at like a lower tier, both in terms of ability and in-ring charisma. Still, it was a valuable match for both women. But we need to have a conversation about Jada Parker. She's a star. Now, don't get it twisted. I'm not saying she's ready for the main roster or even a prominent spot on NXT quite yet. But everything she did was believable. And I was left wanting much more from her. She has charisma for days. She looks great, both in terms of attractiveness, which I'm not judging her on, I'm just stating it as a fact, but also her size and body type and the ability for her to add muscle and present that type of presence that you want from a main roster WWE superstar. This is gonna sound 
like ridiculously hyperbolic. But I have no problem if anyone clips this, what I'm about to say here. Jada Parker, her ceiling is as a main event level heel for a decade on the main roster. That's the ceiling. Think of her in the same context of like Triple H. She healed it up better walking to the ring and wrestling for however many minutes against Rizzo than most other women in developmental can right now and many women on the main roster can. And this was just her fourth television match of any kind. Jada is just one of those prospects where you know it when you see it, and I see it, period. Tatum Paxley fought Lola Vice. Lyra Valkyria surprisingly ran down to support Paxley as she was getting stomped in the corner. Vice hit a spin kick, a back fist to the chest, and buenas noches, but Paxley got her foot on the rope. Lola came back with what I can only describe as a thigh lock around Tatum's neck, and then she submitted her just inches from the ropes and from Lyra to get the win. Valkyria then carried Paxley away from ringside backstage. And look, there are only so many people where that submission finisher is believable. And let me tell you, Lola Vice is absolutely one of those people. It looked good, but she's got me saying, hey now! The ring work was a bit disjointed here, but this was more about the story of Lyra not just accepting Tatum's friendship, but getting her back and taking care of her. Lola did have her moments. So Shotzi approached Lyra backstage, issuing her social media challenge in person. It quickly got contentious between them, and the end result is a title match scheduled for NXT next week. Shotzi stated that she wanted to take the NXT title to Australia inside Elimination Chamber, and then quipped Valkyria should take care of her friend, to which Lyra responded that they're not friends, only for Tatum to wake up from being knocked out. And that was probably the best moment. And somehow, despite being knocked out, she knew that Shotzi was challenging for the title. The best part about this was how the conversation didn't really feel contrived. Scripted, yes, but not contrived. Shotzi getting a run with the NXT title would actually be a good look, but I didn't see them doing it as much as it would actually help the division. And now they're not going to be able to do it because next week's NXT was taped immediately after this week's show. A lot of the production people and whomever else uh, from the Performance Center are going to be on the road in Australia at Elimination Chamber. So they had to do a double taping. So they did the match, Lyra and Shotzi, as they scheduled. And apparently, Shotzi landed poorly outside of the ring, severely injured her knee, and most are of the belief that it's a torn ACL, which of course is a nine-month-plus injury. She can never catch a break. She's had a terrible last few years, both between her health and obviously her sister's health. She had cancer. A lot of people noted that Shotzi looked thin here. And yes, she did. It's not really for us to comment on as long as she's healthy and happy and all that. But it was definitely noticeable compared to the, like the last time she was on TV frequently. Shotzi was set to have an Elimination Chamber qualifier Friday on SmackDown. She's been replaced by Alba Fire. And they've actually changed the matches to make sure both are heel and babyface. So it's going to be Alba Fire going up against, I believe, Naomi. I hope they get 10 minutes. Alba it's like the second time she's getting a qualifying match on TV and she's obviously going to lose because they're not going to put her in Elimination Chamber when the other option is Naomi. But nevertheless, it's a situation where it's just massively unfortunate for Shotzi. And I'll tell you what's, I mean, it's ironic, obviously. It's not anything planned, but Charlotte Flair, of course, is dealing with her own ACL injury right now and she's rehabbing her ass off. She's posting videos on Twitter 
And she's like six weeks post-surgery. And you're like, what the hell are you doing? You shouldn't be able to be able to do this yet. But if you remember, there was a brief time on SmackDown where Charlotte and Shotzi like teamed up. And it was like the most interesting either or both of them had been separately or together in a long ass time. And I know they're not going to do it. But man, if they're both out for all this time, bringing them back together as a tag team, giving Charlotte a new dimension to her personality, uh, having Shotzi in something where she's featured and, you know, on the main roster and in hopefully a title picture, you would assume she'd be in the title picture, of course, if she's with Charlotte Flair. You know, Charlotte sees gold and she has to follow it. She, she's like, where's the championship? Oh, it's out there. Let me go out there. Even though she has nothing to do with us. So, you know, just having fun there. But if they did come back together as a tag team, I, again, I know it's not going to happen. It would be super interesting. Hopefully something they at least consider doing. Roxanne Perez ranted backstage about Lola screwing her out of her title match and Shotzi just getting one by asking. Ren Sinclair tried to calm her down with some genuine advice, only for Roxy to snap and slap her across the face, continuing to show that edge that she has. The girl apparently thinks she's Dwayne Johnson or something right now. Perez then barged into Ava's office to get an answer about Shotzi being given a title match, only for Ava to turn it, saying she's got to deal with Ren before that's even a conversation. It felt a bit overacted to me by Perez, but Roxy no longer being a pure white meat babyface, that is a necessary character adjustment. It can't exactly make her heal. So this role suits her well. She's doing fine with it. And hell, man, Ava has been doing extremely well in this general manager role. I hope she keeps it up. I didn't think she would do poorly, but I was concerned the way her speech patterns work, that it would make sense, her in a talking only role, speaking only role. It's working. Good for her. Good for NXT. Obafemi came out cutting a promo, again, accented by the grunts of the fans. He put himself over and called Dragon Lee a proud warrior. Femi said he's the alpha species of NXT with the North American title representing his supremacy. He dared anyone to challenge him, saying whoever went up against him wouldn't come back. Lexus King answered that call, saying he softened up Dragon, giving Femi the opening to win the title in the first place, and he deserves the chance to take it off of him. Oba agreed to the match next week, but as Lexus went for the coronation, Femi quickly escaped and nearly powerbombed him to hell. Nothing more or less than it needed to be. Oba was not as smooth on the mic as he was previously, but this man posted a fire tweet. I'm not even going to read it for you. I want you to go find his Twitter account. Read it. Look at the name of the Twitter account. Look at the tweet. Super funny. Uh, again, a guy with a massively high ceiling in Obafemi and Lexus King seems to be a great challenger that he can beat and it won't affect him that much because King, even though his character is getting plenty of TV time, he's not being booked that strong on purpose. So again, it should be an easy win for Obafemi. Von Wagner and Mr. Stone fought Noam Dar and Oro Mensa. The heels were confident while relaxing backstage when the faces barged in, beat them up, and dragged them out to the ring to open NXT. It was the sneak attack strategy that Stone's kid suggested last week. Wagner got the hot tag, hit a double choke slam before Stone, hit a splash off his shoulders for a broken fall. Mensa chopped out Wagner's knee as he was about to powerbomb Dar, with Noam falling on top of him in like a modified jackknife cover for the win. This was more fun than I expected, but hysterically, cameras cut to a dude yawning in the crowd after the bell when it wasn't boring. Like, it legit wasn't. But it was just the wrong camera cut at the wrong time. If the story's going to continue, which it seems to be the case that it's going to continue, the heels winning here was the right call. It actually seems like they might give Wagner the Heritage Cup when this thing is over. Stone worked well, given he hasn't wrestled consistently in years. 
And Lexus King also talked shit to the baby faces backstage, saying they constantly lose and he would be a better role model for Stone's kids, who he suggested watch his upcoming match. Uh, obviously, that pissed Stone off. Just consistent asshole heel work from King. He's definitely got the character down. Now it's the wrestling for him that needs to improve. Also, no quarter catch crew were admiring the Heritage Cup backstage with Charlie Dempsey putting over the history of the cup. Dar and Mensa came in to take it away from them, laughing at the idea that they could win it. Either of them. Either of the four, I should say. Solid backstage segment setting up the expected feud. But it feels like they've confronted metaphor like three times already. Why not just make the challenge and get the match at this point? You know, Josh Briggs was acting kind of like a confident asshole in the kitchen when suddenly Brooks Jensen came in looking like a hero out of an 80s film. Jeans, jean jacket, acid washed, hair all frizzy, basically saying he found his balls over the weekend. Then he attacked Briggs. A bunch of guys quickly separated them with Ava running in all pissed off, saying they would settle it in the ring next week. This was a pretty hot moment for like a short backstage segment. It was also the first TV appearance for Jay Malachi, a 19-year-old indie prodigy who now goes by Javon Evans, which by the way is a really solid NXT name change. So good to see him here. Hopefully he gets a match on TV sooner than later. Brindley Reese fought Kiana James. Reese was over-preparing backstage with Carmen Petrovic. Uh, she was questioning her methods. Kalani Jordan told her, just do your thing, girl. Lash Legend and Jakara Jackson came in talking shit, ditching them, saying they don't get why people are making a fuss over the faces. Brindley did the cartwheel clothesline like a hundred times better than Charlotte Flair, then hit a cutter off her shoulders. Uh, Kiana came back with an inverted DDT on the 401k, which is apparently no longer her finisher because she hit one of those falling boot moves and got the win, kind of like eat defeat. Brindley was kind of impressive in her short performance. Kiana did her job as usual. I don't know why they're going away from the 401k, but we'll see. Malik Blade was expressing sadness for Brindley's loss with Idris Anofe sarcastically co-signing. Anofe said the loss hurts no matter your mindset, and Reese should now be able to feel like they feel when they lose. Blade wanted to be supportive. Anofe remained sarcastic. Reese cartwheeled into the room, still peppy, suggesting it was James's experience that was the only difference in the match. Idris was surprised she wasn't mad or angry at losing. Brindley said she's never been better. Probably liked this more than I should. All three just showed a lot of character here, and that was nice. Ridge Holland fought Gallus in a gauntlet match. Wolfgang started and ate Holland's Northern Grit finisher during the commercial break with Mark Coffey next. He also hit Mark with the finisher, but Joe pulled him out of the ring and got a disqualification. Holland took a brief three-on-one beating before grabbing a chair that Joe brought in the ring and wearing out all three guys. Then he stopped himself, realizing what he was doing. Like, looked at his hands. Oh my God, I'm so brutal to these people. Even though they attacked me and it was three-on-one, I shouldn't have beat them this hard. Like, kind of weird. Commentary talked about him needing to come to grips with something internally. All I know is this was boring as sin. Holland is way less interesting on his own rather than with Pete Dunne or Butch back in the day, the brawling brutes as a whole. And what they're doing, like I get the angle, I get the storyline, but it is just not working for me at all right now. Bucket zero. And there was a second version of the black and white text vignette saying, goodness is a man's struggle. Evil, however, is human nature. I still think it's Boa and Dante Chen. Yes, that's boring and disappointing. And for anyone getting their hopes up, if they see it's Boa and Dante Chen, they're going to roll their eyes. But don't, you know, raise your expectations too high. Maybe it's someone else. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's a developmental prospect they're giving a new gimmick to. But those guys were doing the face paint thing in the background of multiple segments leading into the last premium live event. They've been off TV for months. It makes sense to be them. We will find out. So that was NXT this week. Another, you know, fast-paced, entertaining, kind of impressive two hours of wrestling television. 
there are weeks where they miss, but they don't come frequently. And this certainly was not one of them still building a lot ahead of uh, Stand and Deliver. And notable that the episode was so entertaining without Trick Williams or Ilya Dragunov on the show. So with that, let's go ahead and move over to AEW. This has been a pretty interesting week for them. So, you know, ticket sales for TV, they've been relatively awful. I mean, they're putting 2,000, 3,000 people in some of these shows, yet they've sold 15,000 plus tickets for Revolution, which obviously features a huge Sting retirement match, but the card is super strong as well, just in terms of wrestling quality for a pay-per-view. They're signing more and more talent, yet they're successfully restoring the feeling of what AEW used to be. I promise not to use that phrase too much because it is an eye roll. And I thought last week on Dynamite, they were going to smash 900,000 in the ratings. It barely hit 800,000, and that's without any major competition. So not totally sure what's going on there, but let's go ahead and get into the entire week. As always, I evaluated the matches, whether they had storyline build or explanation or any of that. The positive news is it was way up from last week. 10 matches had such build, seven did not. That's 59%. Let's just round it. 60, even though 59 was already being rounded, but 60%, nearly two thirds, but not quite, had storyline build or explanation. It's up from last week, still down from two weeks ago. Some of them were super thin and a result of like story extensions, like the CMLL stuff, where there's not actual reason for the individual matches, just part of a larger storyline. Still, it was the second best week in this regard over the last few months, and that's a positive. AEW, they just gotta get to like, I don't, they don't need to be WWE where it's 95%, but they need to get to like 75%, 80%. And if they do on a consistent basis, I promise you, I will stop talking about this. So let's go ahead, break down Dynamite Collision and Rampage. We're gonna do it based on storyline. And we'll start with Dynamite. Samoa Joe opened hour two saying he was disappointed in last week's draw and that this anonymous championship committee made the match bigger and dumber instead of kicking them to the back of the line. Joe said the penance would be him taking two of AEW's bright young stars and destroying them. Swerve Strickland was out next, getting a nice ovation, including from someone who was dressed like Jesus for some reason. Swerve basically wanted respect on his name. Hangman Page joined wearing a black leather jacket because, you know, he's a heel now, clarifying that he wasn't mad last week, but it was a horseshit decision because Swerve didn't beat him. Hangman then got in Swerve's face, saying he didn't deserve more of his time and doesn't deserve to be in the match. Joe just straight up told them to piss off, slammed his mic down, and the segment ended. This felt like it probably could have been the go-home segment. So AEW better have some heat for like the next two weeks here, just to build upon this. I continue to find it amazing how Swerve, like 10 days ago, was basically saying, I'm the biggest piece of shit in this company, I've done the worst shit in wrestling history, and now fans are just cheering him anyway. Now, I get it, he's over. That's awesome. That's how you know someone is over. But if you know that, you don't have him go out and like remind everyone that he's an absolutely terrible person. Hangman feels immensely tryhard as a heel. It clearly does not fit him well, but the double turn is working, and this was the hottest segment individually in the ring of the entire week. Now, AEW announced a trios match next week, but it was strange because Hangman, who threw the double turn, is now a heel. He's on the babyface side, and Swerve is on the heel side along with Samoa Joe. Again, they just did a double turn. So that's really odd. Now, if Hangman walks out on the faces next week, okay, that can probably work and they can explain that away. I just thought it was strange the way this match was booked. They're combining two storylines with a hook 
Brian Cage storyline. We'll talk about that at the very end of this segment. I, I just thought it was a really strange match booking. On Rampage, the Young Bucks beat a couple jobbers in two minutes with a low blow and the EVP trigger. They debuted a new succession-like theme, which works with the gimmick, but still being called the Young Bucks really doesn't. They were wearing the blood-covered suits from Dynamite, and they wrestled in vests. The Bucks then cut a promo with crocodile tears, wishing Sting and Darby Allen improved health, saying they will work their way up the rankings and regain the titles. For some reason, I thought they had already won the number one contendership back at full gear, but they lost that match, and I just completely forgot. Either way, it's unintentionally ironic that the EVPs are going to use AEW's fake system of bullshit, like match building, to become number one contenders in a two-week span. On Dynamite, the Young Bucks fought top flight. I believe this stemmed from the fines a week ago, so there was a reason for it. The Bucks were still wrestling in the suits, which now looked like they were brown instead of red, and I presume that's just from blood drying over a period of time, but it completely ruined the effect of it. It looked like they were covered in like a chocolate milkshake or melted chocolate ice cream rather than blood. The Bucks also sported the Sting block, you know, goatee look immediately under the lip that looks so bad on pretty much everyone else except for Sting. This was the non-tagging flippy shit match you would expect with Rick Knox officiating just to boot. He caught Matthew cheating with the ropes on a cover, so he used the distraction for a pop-up low blow followed by an EVP trigger for the win. Enjoyed the finish the match we've seen dozens of times before. Matthew sarcastically put over top flight after the bell saying, now they're the number one contenders, which was made official by a graphic on the screen. Tony Schiavone then used disparaging terms about their attack on Sting. So he got fined $1,000 by the EVPs. Nicholas then chest bumped him or shoulder checked him to the canvas. They pretended to help him up. They were ready to do the EVP trigger on Schiavone, which I would have freaking loved. Unfortunately, Darby made the save and he went on a rant saying the original mission of AEW was to change the world. He said the Bucks overlooked him for their shitty California crew like Brandon Cutler, but at least there was one EVP who had some brains and brought him in, and the fans immediately chanted loudly for Cody Rhodes. Darby said Sting has nothing left to lose, and it's showtime, meaning the match is official. I shit you not, this was my favorite Darby promo and perhaps the best one he's ever cut. Full of piss and vinegar, almost reminded me of John Moxley to a degree. And if, the, if there's high praise to give on someone for cutting a promo, comparing them to John Moxley, folks, is freaking high praise. There were moments where I was like, wow, maybe Mox actually gave this guy some tips. I loved the way he drew a line between the Bucks, their dumb crew, and others on the roster. But that praise that I just gave is all about his delivery. There are issues here. The primary one being that you really don't want your fans chanting for WWE's top babyface in your lone segment promoting your main event match for Revolution. This also struggled to follow up a brutal, bloody beatdown last week. The Bucks took out Borden's kids, bloodied both of them, meaning Sting and Darby, have been parading around with blood all over their suits for a week. And Darby is out here talking about his history with the Jacksons. Don't get me wrong. Enhancing the story by showing... There's animosity between them beyond the attack. That's important and valued. But he didn't even mention the attack. He should have started the promo infuriated about that, how they're such huge pieces of shit, how they're using their power to not face any repercussions for doing that, and then adding that they've been on opposite sides for years, so he shouldn't be surprised by any of it. Instead, he was way, way, way more upset about their favoritism and nepotism five years ago than he was the fact 
that he and Sting just got brutalized by them last week. The other note I have for Darby is that, look, dude, if you just slow down, slow down your speaking 25%, your promos are gonna come across so much better. It seems like he stumbles over his words unnecessarily, almost like he's nervous on the mic. He doesn't need to be nervous on the mic. The guy has proven he can speak and he can deliver a promo, but you gotta slow down and be more deliberate. That way the fans understand you and your points hit harder. When you rush through shit, it just doesn't land the same way. So I'm taking a segment here with Darby that I wanna be clear about. I was very excited about it in the moment. And then as I sat and thought about it, and I was typing notes for this podcast, I'm like, you kind of didn't do your job. Like you did the second half of the job, but it needs to be preceded by the first half, which is addressing what happened last week. They didn't do it. The time between now and revolution is limited. Sting, let's presume, is out another week, probably comes back for the go-home show. We'll see what happens. On Rampage, Mystico beat Matt Seidel in eight minutes with a Spanish fly off the ropes. I was just happy to see a Spanish fly end a match. I assumed, based on the matchup, that the actual wrestling would be better. It was really underwhelming. On Collision, John Moxley and Claudio Castagnoli fought Esfinhe, I believe is how you say his name, and Star Jr., Typical match with a typical finish. Claudio hit the Ricola bomb and somehow got busted open on his pec. Mox delivered the hammer elbows and won with an armbar submission. BCC talked about fighting any tag team in the world in a promo after the bell. So FTR came down, went face-to-face with them. The sides got into a pull-apart brawl. There was a lot of smoke in the air for some reason. I couldn't really figure out why. Also strange was AEW cutting away from a supposed-to-be hot brawl and just going to commercial. Also strange is that I thought FTR was in the middle of moving up in the trios division. So... Why are they involved here? We found that out later. I have no problem with them doing two things at once. It just came across as kind of random in the moment. Maybe Wheeler Yuta gets involved and they actually do a trios feud coming out of all this. That could work. On Dynamite, Mox fought Dax Harwood. Dax kissed Mox for some reason, I guess because it's Valentine's Day. Dax then took a catapult into the ring post and much later hit a superplex. Then they started headbutting each other while on all fours, like a couple of dogs, like for real. And it's not me saying that, commentary said that. Dax put Mox in a sharpshooter, hit a pile driver. Mox kicked the middle rope to catch Harwood in the groin, adding a cutter stomp and pile driver for a false finish. Dax came back with another perfect brain buster. Perfect in that it was directly on top of Mox's head. It was another false finish. Mox then caught him flying with a rear naked choke for the submission, leaving it locked in after the bell. Cash Wheeler ran in. Claudio quickly took him out with a neutralizer. Uh, Then they went back to the submissions for like five more seconds for some reason, because they're big, bad BCC. And then the whole thing ended. This is going to be one of a few times on the show where I praise the match and express disappointment for the post-match. It didn't make much sense where all the vitriol came from here. The work battle bell was fantastic. There was one mistake where the ring announcer twice said there were two minutes left, which of course is not possible. Uh, but this was probably the match of the week for AEW overall. I went 3.75 stars B+. On Dynamite, Don Callis backstage said Konosuke Takeshka is the best rope-to-rope wrestler in the world, but he can't find anyone to fight him at Revolution, and he deserves to be on the card. Therefore, he decided to put family member against family member, booking Takeshka against Will Ospreay for Revolution. The idea being that they're going to fight as brothers for respect, which will make them and the family even stronger once it's all over. Don't worry. Don't worry. I'm not going to do what everyone thinks I'm going to do. Flip out, man. I actually buy this. 
Is it forced and a bit nonsensical given the depth of AEW's roster? Sure. Is it convoluted and flimsy? Absolutely. But in character, Callus is a strange cat who has made frequent like infighting decisions across different incarnations of all of his factions. And the idea that he got drunk, remembered his father used to pit him against his brother and thought it would be a good move for his faction, it's actually not that far-fetched. Plus, it'll wind up being a banger match and likely lead to Osprey turning babyface. And maybe that leads to him winning the AEW title at All In months from now. It's a compelling, is it a compelling storyline? No, it's not. But I'm going to give him a break on this one. Let's see how it builds over the next couple of weeks. I would really like to see Osprey on TV building this match, questioning Callus for booking it, etc., and not just showing up at Revolution for the first time. On Collision, Daniel Garcia fought Shane Taylor. There's a fair bit of offense from Taylor here, but Garcia locked him in a knee bar after a dragon screw to get the submission victory. Match had no reason for happening. The winner was obvious from the start. On Collision, Eddie Kingston backstage called out the Bucks for attacking and stealing the thunder of Sting and Darby last week. He said Brian Danielson did the same thing to Brian Keith last week and then challenged him at Revolution, presumably for the Continental title. Kingston said the stipulation is that Danielson would have to shake his hand and act like he respects him when Eddie beats him. Just like with Kevin Owens, you can always count on Kingston to cut through the bullshit and ultimately deliver. On Collision, Brian Keith cut a backstage promo saying he's about a payday, he wants to fight all the stars and collect his bounty. This was straight out of the 1980s. Certainly did not make me care about him, nor did I learn anything about him coming out of this. And that should always be the benefit if you're gonna put something on television. On Collision, Adam Copeland was asked what title he wanted to go after as the number three men's singles contender, and the top two are fighting Samoa Joe, which gives him his choice. This was such a dumb way to start the segment. Hmm, I wonder who he's going to choose given the international and continental titles already have challengers, Roderick Strong and Brian Danielson, respectively. And here again, I'm reminded, AEW has five men's singles titles for one brand. Copeland also called out the Bucks for attacking Sting and Darby. And by the way, I liked that, that Kingston and Copeland are like, yo, what the hell is going on in this company where something like this is allowed? That's a storyline permeating other people not attached to it, and that means that it matters. Really, really like that. Anyway, he started talking about Christian Cage when Garcia came out, noting he beat the patriarchy and deserves a title shot first, TNT title, of course. So Copeland proposed a number one contendership between them, to which Garcia agreed. You see how easy it is to create a clear, simple, concise storyline reason for a match. This is a good segment outside of the ridiculous question by Shivani to start. Stupid though, the match was made official five seconds later with a full graphic on a live show. Like just give us a shred of realism in our wrestling. They do this all the time, AEW. A match that comes out of nowhere maybe gets announced and there's a graphic immediately for it. It's ridiculous. On Dynamite, Copeland and Garcia had that match. The crowd was hot for this with two baby faces. Cope took a dragon screw off the ropes and another in the ring as Garcia worked the knee. Cope then did a double underhook suplex off the ropes. Commentary twice called it an impaler DDT, but there was no DDT. Copeland limped, trying a spear. So Garcia countered with a kick and the jackknife cover for a false finish. Nick Wayne and Luchasaurus both attacked during a submission attempt for a no contest. Christian came down and grabbed two chairs, so Daddy Magic got involved and quickly leveled. They tried a concerto on Garcia, but of course, Copeland made the save. He cornered Christian, only to eat a low blow from Shayna Wayne. Cope then took Wayne's rule, the lariat called the extinction, and a concerto to end it. The match was fun. Shaman had to end it in no contest, but the booking made sense. 
And finishes like that in AEW are so rare, I almost never have a problem when they actually do them. Garcia's been running hot, so it was a smart way not to stall his momentum while still getting him in a big featured match. We always judge concertos based on how long it takes for the victim to come back. So let's hope Copeland is out for weeks selling it. Really, the only negative here is that the AEW backstage crew is so quick to run out to break up like a regular brawl, like we talked about before with BCC and FTR, but they're nowhere to be found when there's a concerto involved that could end a guy's career. It's inconsistent as hell, but also that's professional wrestling to a degree. On Rampage, Chaos fought Undisputed Kingdom. Roderick Strong blindsided Rocky Romero during a clothesline run with a pump knee, then hit End of Heartache with the heels winning basically a three-on-one sequence as the rest of Chaos was destroyed at ringside. Strong then dumped Romero into a couple open chairs with another End of Heartache. Really don't have anything for you here. On Collision, Orange Cassidy fought Tomohiro Ishii for the international title. Undisputed Kingdom talked shit to Ishii backstage with Strong planning to beat him should he take out Cassidy. Ishii refused to shake his hand and didn't say a word, so really nothing happened, just like the build to the match itself. This was the main event, and it was a damn good match, as one usually gets with Ishii. Orange took an avalanche brainbuster and then collapsed during a chop sequence. Ishii countered Beach Break into a powerbomb that Orange no-sold. He came back with an orange punch and Beach Break for a false finish. Then Cassidy no-sold a dragon suplex, but ate two lariats. Ishii then no-sold an orange punch that he sold earlier, only for Cassidy to win, and I bet you can guess how via small package, because that's how matches like this always end in AEW. Undisputed Kingdom attacked Orange after the bell with Ishii saving. You can't have a match result, end the show in AEW. Can't happen, you have to have a post-match beatdown, have to have someone cut open, something like that. Ishii, as many of you guys know, is among my favorites. I was ready to go in the four-star range here, but the immense number of no-sells and some of the ridiculous sequences at the end just took me out of it, 3.75 stars B+. A fun time overall, even if a bit frustrating. On Dynamite, Wardlow squashed a jobber, pausing to flex and watch himself on the big screen in the middle of the match. Adam Cole was on commentary with a shit-eating grin, as if beating a jobber for the upteenth time is some part of a master plan or something. It's amazing how far this group has fallen, and it's amazing that Wardlow is still just pummeling jobbers, and everyone is totally fine with that, as it's acceptable and a great use of this guy's talent. Zero point zero. On Dynamite, Orange fought Matt Taven in a Texas death match. You heard that correctly. Cassidy bladed so deep, the blood was dark and dripping. It was disgusting. He took a suplex into a table under the stage. Taven then did a tope outside, throwing himself into a table propped up against the announce booth and he bladed after he landed. Orange put a heart-shaped chocolate box uh, out of the ring, pulled, I should say, a heart-shaped chocolate box out of the ring and dumped thumbtacks in the middle of the ring, which was kind of funny. Then Taven tossed him backwards into them, only for Orange to move seconds later, not selling the thumbtacks, with Taven frog splashing himself into them. Mike Bennett ran out and destroyed Orange. Tremperetta followed with a steel pipe, smashed it into a chair in Bennett's skull. Taven then threw a chair into Trent's face and it collided violently. I don't think there was a hand up or anything like that. Orange hit Taven with an orange punch and beach break, but he basically got right back to his knees and then stood up tearing Orange's pockets. So Orange wrapped the chain around his fist and knocked him out. Strong runs down. And instead of picking up Taven to stop the 10 count, because it's a death match, he took out Trent, who was running between him and Orange. He was trying to hit Orange. Trent came between them, but hit Trent with a pump knee. And then Taven just gets counted to 10 and Orange wins. (laughs) 
Wholly overbooked match, Batman. The finish here was the height of ridiculousness. The blading was absurd. It's expected that death matches and hardcore matches require more to put wrestlers down. That's fine. But the immense amount of no-selling, particularly by Taven, was insane. And that's unfortunate because Taven worked his ass off otherwise in this match. It was a standout performance for him in many ways besides that. And my distaste for it really doesn't take away from the effort that either of these guys put in. Again, they worked their asses off. This gets credit for storyline relevance like in our counter, but the booking did not make a shred of sense in reality. Other than the show being in Texas, there was no actual reason for it to go all the way to the extreme of a death match. There was no specific aggression between Cassidy and Taven. Their groups are having problems, sure, but this was violence for violence's sake. How are these guys supposed to think strong is their boy when he gives up a chance to save Taven and like attacks Orange instead. That's what he does. Where was Wardlow, by the way, when the rest of the group is involved in this match? This is where AEW just completely loses me on stuff. They did a huge bloodletting angle at the end of Dynamite last week, and they do it again here. And again, it's just blood for the sake of blood. This wasn't some, you know, months-long story between Orange and Taven where it has to end in a Texas death match, and then you get all the violence and gore and these guys get it out of their system. It was a random main event on a random dynamite that just so happened to be in Texas, and these guys are bloodletting each other. I mean, look, people are probably going to praise this match to no end because it was violent, and there were some cheeky moments in it. Outside of the Wardlow bit, it was probably my least favorite part of the entire show Wednesday. On collision, Deanna Perrazzo beat Kara Hogan in about four minutes with a Venus de Milo submission. On the same show, Tony Storm beat Queen Aminata in a match that immediately followed when about nine minutes, Storm's nose got busted open. Aminata hit an air raid crash, then Storm dodged her, hitting the hip attack in Storm Zero for the win. Commentary keeps trying to put over Aminata because she's trying and failing to win. So it like seems like they're turning it into a storyline where she'll eventually win and she'll get signed by AEW. That doesn't change the lazy booking of using her twice a week in constant losing efforts, as opposed to actually booking legitimate storylines for the women's division. She's 0-8 on AEW TV right now. And that's not even counting dark matches and Ring of Honor and all this other bullshit. After the bell, Storm laid in the middle of the ring, did her normal promo that amounted to nothing. The Prazo match was a joke. Uh, the Storm gimmick, it's jumped the shark for me. And we already discussed Aminata, who has at least sparked getting all the work, despite the criticisms of the booking of her. So let's just move on. On Dynamite Storm debuted a new film about the tattoo and her history with Perrazzo. Tony was getting the tattoo touched up, basically you're adding new elements around it. She was saying that she would give Diana the old Tony Storm if that's what she wants. Then backstage, Perrazzo called her a bitch. It's just not hitting for me, folks. It's getting decent time. That's a positive. But the storyline is boring as sin. I will say the vignette was really well edited and produced, and I could see a lot of people enjoying it, but it just wasn't for me. On Rampage, Chris Statlander and Willow Nightingale fought the outcast. The ladies main evented, which was appropriate because it was by far the most entertaining of three very mediocre matches on this show. Stat ate no future. Willow ducked, leading to Soraya accidentally hitting Ruby. Stat hit Blue Thunderbomb on Soraya with Soho jumping off the apron, refusing to tag. Harley Cameron got in her face, so she got punched. Willow then won with a doctor bomb. Stokely Hathaway shook both of their hands and got a bear hug from Willow. Sky Blue then showed up and waved at them. The lights went out. Julia Hart appeared next to her on the ramp. And it just ended from there. Feels like there's movement toward a women's tag team division again. It's the way this is being handled. You'll remember something similar happened about six or nine months ago when there were thoughts about like Mercedes Monet joining. At least that was my perception of the booking. 
And then it got completely dropped for obvious reasons, because without Mercedes, why will AEW try in the women's division, right? Now that she's actually coming through, it looks like it's being surfaced again. I also could be completely misreading it, and that's very possible. On Collision, the trio cut a promo on the heels, correctly pointing out that they've already done this feud with Julia and seemingly have no reason to go back to it. But it looks like Willow and Sky is coming up sooner than later, and that's exactly what happened a few days later when we got Willow versus Sky on Dynamite. Willow ate a powerbomb out of the corner with a high stack. Stoke left commentary to distract the referee as Sky hit cold blue for a 15 count that went unrecognized. Willow immediately came back with a doctor bomb for the win, and the crowd actually booed Stoke distracting the referee, even though it was for a babyface, because that's a very heel tactic. In storyline, seeing Stoke actively help and then dap up Willow, that was an important development. Doing it with her being beaten clean otherwise by a heel, not really sure that was the right booking. It should not have been done during what would have otherwise been a finishing sequence, if that makes sense. But it was well-wrestled and pretty entertaining. On collision, Mark Briscoe fought Brody King. Briscoe hit a really big high-risk move outside, only to eat a huge lariat back inside. Mark came back with the Death Valley driver, but Julia distracted when he went for the froggy bow. That allowed King to push Briscoe off the top rope through a table outside and win with the gonzo bomb. Brody's mouth also got busted open. Don't even know how that happened. After the bell, Julia stabbed Mark with the spike, a spike of some kind. I don't know really what it was. He bladed immediately with Brody rubbing his cast in it to make it bleed even more profusely. Fun match, absolutely awful post-match. What is with all of the fucking blood? Save it for when it matters. We got two guys blading last week. We got three guys blading this week. There might've even been more that I missed. And none of them are like little cuts where there's just a little blood to add to something or it happens as part of the match. This is a post-match segment that doesn't need it. And then you got what happened in the death match a couple days later. Like, I'm not sure why they needed to protect Briscoe against Brody King, an absolute monster and a legitimate competitor. I'm not sure why they needed to bust him open in completely disgusting fashion. Just fuck this dumb shit, man. On Dynamite, Bang Bang Scissor Gang backstage said they were in their lounge. They were literally just standing backstage. There was no lounge. Uh, Jay White or Clubhouse, maybe they, is the word they use, I don't remember. Jay White said they have momentum but haven't tested their cohesiveness. Billy Gunn and his son simultaneously suggested a 12-man tag team match. Seems unnecessary. He tells me that AEW has no idea what to do with these guys, at least in the interim. Remember when they aligned specifically because of Undisputed Kingdom and the attacks against them? And they didn't even bother to go after them or mention them again? Was the point of making this a group just to like create more catchphrases and sell t-shirts? And I guess they'll eventually split up and go after each other, maybe merge the trio's titles. We talked about that like a month ago at this point. Is this really the best usage of Jay freaking White right now in AEW? This is what they have for him creatively? Come on. On Rampage, Brian Cage backstage accused Hook of avoiding him after the chair shot last week, saying he will also win a handicap match over a couple jobbers, just like Hook did. That's exactly what happened on Collision, with Cage wrecking the Outrunners in 70 seconds. Thrilling stuff. Cage then attacked the Las Vegas Golden Knights mascot, who was ringside doing the swerve dance with Prince Nana. That enraged Hook, who attacked Cage on the ramp and the two brawled into the back. We didn't see them brawling in the back. No backstage camera. Just ended. It was hilarious, though, that Hook got enraged over a mascot getting attacked. And it's also going to be hilarious seeing Hook eventually beat Cage. Uh, after Dynamite was the Rampage taping. As per usual, there was a Sammy Guevara-Jeff Hardy match booked for no logical reason or storyline reason, of course. In that match, Jeff got knocked out cold. He took a knee to the head 
on a shooting star press. And yes, you know exactly where I'm going with this. The match was allowed to continue and they did the finish for real. This from what Tony Khan purports to be the safest wrestling company ever. This from the company that overturned a referee decision, I believe it was Aubrey Edwards, to stop a match and restarted it and has now allowed concussed wrestlers to continue matches in every single year of its existence. Absolutely pathetic shit. Speaking of Tony, he suggested on Twitter that AEW is changing its set and possibly its color scheme after Revolution. That's music to my ears. I have hated this blue and red look. It has never felt like AEW. I do like the set, but I hate the way they use it with that huge advertisement on one side of the screen. Honestly, if quote unquote restore the feeling is truly what they're trying to accomplish, go back to the tunnels on Dynamite. Use the primary gold scheme. Use the rainbow splashes of color. That's the ticket, man. That was the best look they've ever had. Let Collision keep the current Nitro set, the yellow and red and all that bullshit. Let them do that. Bring Dynamite back to what it used to be. You want to restore the feeling? Restore it visually. And folks, that wraps up the AEW portion of the show, as well as this entire edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So on the way out, allow me to remind you that Getting Over is all about Defy. So be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review if you do. We will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. And please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up. You'll get bonus audio, exclusive news posts, and a lot more. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. A couple more reminders, just schedule-wise on the way out. We will be back on Friday with a special WWE interview episode. Seth Rollins, Jade Cargill, Gunther, Chad Gable, and more all coming up on a special Friday show. And then the plan right now is to be back next Tuesday for your WWE Elimination Chamber Ultimate Preview. And then, of course, next Thursday, same bat time, same bat channel with your next NXT and AEW show, where I do hope to be able to touch on some New Japan pro wrestling news and match breakdowns as well. Thank you all for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. This is the Silver King signing off and leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now.